Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. For my part, I know nothing with any certainty, but the sight of the stars makes me dream. Vincent Van Gogh. I want to thank everybody for your interest and support in Upthinking Finance this year. And is this the last episode for 2022? I want to wish everybody a happy, safe, and blessed holiday season. I thought it'd be appropriate to end the year with a subject that impacts everybody probably throughout the year, but typically during the holidays, and that is the travel industry and specifically the airline industry. So I want you to sit back, envision yourself. You've boarded the airplane. Hopefully you're sitting in first or business class and you've got one of those scalding hot handkerchief napkin things. You're wiping your hands and your face, getting ready for a pre-flight beverage or perhaps those nice heated warm mixed nuts that I always look forward to. And then the cockpit door shuts. Well, today's guest is going to share with us what goes on on the other side of that door. His name is Captain Steve Knight. He's a 50-year veteran in the aviation industry. He holds an airline transport pilot certificate, as well as a commercial pilot certificate, a flight engineer certificate, and a certified flight instructor certificate. Steve has flown more than 22,000 hours and has type ratings for seven different aircraft. He's operated all over the world in various aviation settings. Steve has also held aviation management positions of chief pilot, director of operations, fleet captain, and standards captain while spending 39 years working at United Airlines. There, he led the flight training and standards program for the Boeing 777 as well as the Boeing 747. Steve is currently retired. He lives in Colorado with his wife, Suzanne, and continues to hold a current certified flight instructor certificate. So it's my pleasure to welcome, coming to us from Evergreen, Colorado, my friend, Captain Stephen Knight. Steve, welcome to Upthinking Finance. Thank you, Emerson. Glad to be here with you. Excited to talk to you about the subjects today. No, it's a pleasure. So I've got everybody on board. I'm personally sitting in first class waiting for my mixed nuts. <laughs> the door's closed. And I just really like to turn the time over and let's just see what's going on. You're getting ready. You're on the runway. You've got a plane full of passengers. Yeah, well, we're not to the runway yet. There's a lot of work there. They just closed the door. We're just getting ready to push back from the gate. And there's a lot of things that went on up to that point. I like to call it 60-player football team that's getting the jet ready to go halfway around the world. And as you might imagine, there's a lot of people involved. Uh, long ways quite a bit more than just pilots and flight attendants. There's dispatchers and planners and meteorologists and cargo loaders and caterers and all kinds of people that are getting the airplane ready to go. But if the doors close the cockpit and it means we're locked down and ready to go and the brakes are released, they push us back and now it's time to go through. The thing about an airline operation, it lives and dies by what we call SOP, standard operating procedures. On any given day, when I was flying, we had about 12,000 pilots. And on any given day, you might be flying. I'm going to use an example of a long-haul international trip. So there's four pilots up there. And you might be flying with three guys you've never flown with before. And so there's got to be really rigid standard operating procedures. So everybody knows what the other person's going to do next and what to expect. So Everything from engine starts to taxiing to takeoff to climb out, all the way through all the steps of a flight, standard operating procedures are guide, our Bible. So at that point, you're getting ready to go. And 
but before this point, before we release brakes, I make an announcement to the passengers to talk to you, to bring you in the loop of what the plan is for the day, how long the flight's going to be, what the weather's going to be like, what time we're expecting to arrive in local time. And I'll use it again. Finished up my career flying a lot of Los Angeles to Sydney. So I just use that as an example. It's a good long haul, 14, 14 and a half hour trip. Yeah. That takes a lot of planning and a lot of thinking about. And I try and be as transparent as I can with passengers about what the trip's going to be like. If we know we're going to end up in some large thunderstorms around the equator, which is not unusual on that trip, then I'll let you know ahead of time. It might get a little bumpy right through there. We've got typically four pilots on that kind of flight, somewhere around 14 to 15 flight attendants. Wow. And depending on the airplane, I've done it on multiple airplanes, 747s, 777s, 787s. But depending on the airplane, maybe 250 to 300 passengers. So I like to say it's kind of a small city going to 35,000 feet. Mm. And you have all the same issues at 35,000 feet in a small city as you would on the ground in a small city. Lots of different personalities, lots of things that can go right and can go wrong. From people getting sick to belligerent to just your kind of mayor and chief of police and everything else up there. So at this point, we're taxiing out and getting ready to head out, but a lot of work's been done up to this point to be even be ready to take off. So here's a question. You just reminded me. I know the first few times I went to New York years ago, I always thought it'd be interesting to see if you'd ever get the same cab driver twice. <laughs> what are the odds, right? I'm wondering, I mean, is it safe to say you fly with different pilots more frequently than you have the same co-pilot from time to time? Well, it's not as much as I may have sounded like when I said we might fly with people we've never seen, which you might. But in the airline business, the way you get your route or your trip is all based on seniority. So you bid for that every month. And because people of around the same seniority are bidding the same trips, because that's what they like to fly, it's not unusual to be flying with people that you've flown with before. But this is where that consistency you mentioned, the, the procedures... I imagine the company has to spend a lot of time and expense making sure that every last detail, everybody's, like you said, you can plug in people and you're not going to vary from the plan. I mean, that sounds critical. It is critical. About several years of my career, I worked in the United Training Center and I was in charge of training for the 777 and the 747. And that's what that game's all about. Not only do you have to do all the evaluations of the pilots and certify them every nine months that they're good to go. In that job, you're also in charge of the standards. And so you're constantly tweaking the standard operating procedures when you see a little glitch in an operation. A safety report comes in or a pilot that you're flying with mentions something. And you look into that and say, yeah, we could do a little better by tweaking that SOP. But yeah, that's a huge part of the training, whether you're brand new at United, a brand new pilot, a new hire training or you're just changing airplanes, because every time you change airplanes, you go back to school for roughly a month. And so the SOPs across the airline are pretty much the same. They're uh, modified slightly for the airplane you're flying, because they might be different on an Airbus 320 than they are on a 747, just because of the nature of the airplane. But they don't vary very much. Callouts that we talk about all the time, when we have certain callouts to make at certain points in the flight, those will be standardized across the airline. So even when you change airplanes, you're going to be doing the same thing. And like I said, that's kind of what we live and die by is standard operating procedures. It's a huge safety issue. That's kind of interesting because when people, again, the passengers, <laughs> I guess you think about safety issues, it's always the mechanical stuff. You don't really think about 
what you're talking about, which is communication, which is more of the operation of the plane. You know what I'm saying? Does that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the big milestones in aviation since I've been in it, and I've been in aviation a little over 50 years. I was at United just about 40 years. One of the big milestones was way back when I was a new hire at United in 1979. We had a DC-8 crash in Portland, Oregon. And it was a United DC-8. It was close to home for me because at the time I was assigned to being a flight engineer on the DC-8. I wasn't obviously on that flight, but there was a real problem there with crew communication. And I won't get down into the weeds about all the details, but the, the industry realized they needed to do better. And they developed something called CLR, Cockpit Leadership Resource, later changed names to CRM, Crew Resource Management. So it's gone by a couple of different names. But ever since then, it's become an integral part, and not just United, at every airline across the board, an integral part of crew communication, where the old world way was the captain was king, and you don't dare <laughs> not go along with them, right? But not now. Not now. Everybody's got an input. Everybody's got a valuable input to the whole operation. And very extensive SLPs came out of that so that we're all speaking the same language all the time. We're all reading from the same sheet of music. And if somebody doesn't follow that, it's glaringly obvious to the rest of the crew and you call them Mm -hmm. on it. So it turned into a major, major safety issue. And it's integrated to every bit of training that goes on any airline pilot in the United States right now. So that brings me to a question. You kind of just alluded to it, but how much cooperation are there between competing airlines when it comes to sharing these standard operating procedures? I mean, obviously other airlines are going to use these Boeing planes too. I mean, is there sort of a agreement that this is more important than just who's getting the pubs and all that? Yeah. When it comes to safety, all the airlines are very good at working with one another. There are different groups that meet on a regular basis to discuss that kind of stuff intra across the airlines. Now, when it comes to marketing and where you're going to fly next, yeah. that's not so uh, <laughs> yeah. not put out there. But when it comes to safety, the airlines are very good with working with one another. No, that's good to hear. I want to get back to some of that industry milestone stuff, but maybe can you elaborate a little bit more on just interacting? I mean, you talked about being the mayor of this small city and I'd ask a question. I don't know if it's appropriate, but I'll ask you what to answer because it seems like, have you ever been in a situation where you had to come out of the cockpit to deal with a problem? Is that something you can talk about? Yeah. Well, it's happened numerous times. It happens for different reasons. It's post 9-11, we're much more cautious about leaving the cockpit because for one thing, it makes the cockpit vulnerable anytime you open that door. And secondly, once you're on the outside of the door and something bad happens, there are procedures where they're not to let you back in again. I'm not going to go very far there because there's a lot of security things there, but there can be reasons to not open the door again. And so you have to be cautious about that. But having said that, there's sometimes different reasons that will bring you or one of, it's not always me, it could be one of the other crew members, but there could be a medical issue going on in the back that is largely dealt with by flight attendants. But sometimes there's need to move. We have a couple medical kits on board. One's back in the cabin, one's in the cockpit. They have different supplies. So sometimes you might have to get those supplies from the cockpit to the flight attendants. The other issue is somebody that's out of line in the back. And these days, usually with 14 or 16 flight attendants, there's usually a couple of guys back there. And there's yeah. usually passengers that are pretty good at helping out too. So <laughs> it usually can be taken care of by them. 
but sometimes it takes somebody from the cockpit to get involved. Well, I just leave it at that. No, that's fine. <laughs> I just wondered because I was thinking about all the times I've flown. And honestly, other than the usual bathroom break, you don't usually see anybody come out of the cockpit too often and when the plane's in the air. So what about just working with the people? I mean, do you get a chance? Because I know, you know, you come to an office, you see the same faces every day. I imagine flying, you're going to be seeing a lot of different faces. I mean, do you get a chance to where you can form relationships with the flight attendants or other people that are involved, maybe even mechanics? I don't know. Yeah, to a certain extent. The one thing that gets in the way of that is the airline is a very commute heavy job. In other words, where you're based, probably 60 to 70% of the people don't live there. They live somewhere else. So as far as socializing outside of the workplace, doesn't happen as frequently as it used to. I mean, example was my last base was Los Angeles, but I live in Colorado. Yeah. And that's not unusual. Like I say, it's a very high percentage of people that commute. But to the extent that you have layovers and sometimes you get together for dinner or something when you're on the layover and you might get two or three trips in a row where you see the same pilot or the same flight attendant on the trip and you kind of get to know them and there's a little more interaction that way. It just, it really depends. Sometimes you can fly a dozen trips and see different people every trip. And then sometimes you might fly three or four in a row where you got some of the same people. Well, okay. So you've been in the industry for a long, long time. And I'm guessing, is that a fairly common with pilots? Is that long tenure? Well, I was very fortunate, right place at the right time. I was hired very young. I was hired right after they hadn't hired any pilots for seven years in 1978. And I was hired right when deregulation started. So the airline business really grew by leaps and bounds. I mean, when I got hired at United, I think we had a seniority list of about 4,000 pilots. When I left United, we had a seniority list of 12,000 pilots. Wow. So I'm kind of an outlier in being there 39 years. Not everybody gets that many years in. For one thing, I came up civilian training. I didn't wasn't in the military, so I got hired at a very young age. A lot of people that go to the military first spend some time in the military. So just logistically, by the time they're ready to leave the military and go to the airlines, they're a little older. So they might right. be in the early 30s where I was in my mid-20s. So yeah, I'm a little bit of an outlier, but there are people that do it. But I would say, I don't even know what the average number is, but I would say the average time, if you make it 30 years, I was there 39, but if you make it 30 years, you're probably doing pretty well, given that a good 50% of the pilots are coming out of the military. And that means they're starting a little later at the airline. Interesting. So you mentioned the Portland incident and also deregulation. And I was curious, perhaps, if there's some other things, given the amount of time you've been in the industry, that come to mind as far as major stoplights or checkpoints in the industry that have shifted things noticeably that you wouldn't mind sharing. Yeah, well, one of them that was tied to deregulation was when it really kicked off the feeder commuter operations, because when the airlines were no longer subsidized by the government, it didn't make a lot of sense to fly a DC-8 to Elko, Nevada. It was <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they ever flew a DC-8, but they did fly 737s to Elko, Nevada. So they had to fill that gap some way. The small communities, what they call the thin routes, the routes that are not that many flights a day, that are not that many people. And there's a lot of them out there, whether it's Bakersfield to Denver or places like that. So they had to kick off something. And that's when the feeder, the RJs, so started with props, actually. But then they went to the RJs, the regional jets. So the commuters filled that gap to bring in the passengers to the hub. And they worked off the hub and spoke system where you had major hubs and then all these smaller communities 
would be fed by the commuters to the hub. And then the major airline would pick up the loads from there, combining a lot of different smaller communities onto one airplane to go on to the next big hub. So that was huge because that created a lot of smaller airlines, regional airlines. It created a lot more jobs. It created a stepping stone or a ladder for pilots, especially to work their way up to the major airlines. It was a challenge in the beginning because the feeders were always tied to a major airline. Like there'll be a United Express airline that's tied to United. But in the beginning, United didn't have any control over their training, didn't have any control over their maintenance, didn't have any control Mm. over operating them. They just had a marketing agreement with them, basically. But as time went on, the major that was tied to the regionals had a lot more say-so and in a lot of cases ended up owning the equipment that they're flying or actually owning a piece of the company or all of the company. And so they got a lot more say-so and that solved a lot of safety issues. I was just going to say, getting back to what you were talking about, that would almost have to happen because, I mean, just an inconsistency. I mean, again, it gets back to the safety being the priority. Interesting. Right, right. And and to carry over things like we were talking about earlier, standard operating procedures yeah. and operating that way and to make all of that stuff happen at an entity that you don't necessarily own, but you have a big vested interest in. Well, and as you said, too, then you've got these pilots who are flying these shorter routes that all of a sudden can step right in yep. and not be, I mean, it's, there's a, an efficiency to all that, too. Huh. Absolutely. See, all the things none of us would think about <laughs> yeah. while we're waiting for our meal or the lavatory yeah. light to go green. <laughs> right. Sorry. So. Well. I know there's also some technological changes that have happened. I imagine that's been probably a huge curve in your tenure. It's been gigantic. It's amazing the things that have come along technology-wise. I mean, I started in the days of analog instruments, not digital instruments. What we refer to as a glass cockpit now, because it's just a bunch of computer screens in the cockpit that all this information's presented on and that you work with. And I started out with what we refer to as round dials which were just analog gauges. And that was a big, huge leap because it was a whole different way of flying an airplane. You went from flying an airplane to managing an airplane. A lot of the autopilots, autothrottles, auto brakes and stuff that all came around in the last two to three decades are a big safety improvement, but you have to get your head around how you run the airplane because it's more managing the airplane than it is flying the airplane. Hmm. You still have to be capable of flying the airplane stick and rudder, what we call stick and rudder, where you don't have all that help. Obviously, you got to be able to fly it without that. But on a day-to-day 14-hour trip to Sydney, you're not going to sit there and hand fly the thing the whole way. So the technology and things like TCAS, Traffic Collision Avoidance Systems, that's a special piece of equipment that came out a couple decades ago where the computer will talk to us if there's a potential mid-air conflict between two airplanes as it gets within certain parameters the computer starts warning you and it can even move to the point where the computer tells you what to do descend or climb to avoid and what's Mm -hmm. happening there's something on an airplane called a transponder and the transponder is a piece of communicate digital communication equipment and they can talk to one another so the two airplanes can reason it's one airplane's computer is telling it to descend while the other airplane's telling it to climb i was just going to ask you yeah interesting wow yeah So that was a huge thing. Another one was ACARS, which was 
aircraft communications and addressing reporting system. When I first started as a flight engineer on the DC-8, one of my main jobs was keeping the pay card. I had a book in the back where we'd write down the time that we blocked out and the time we took off and the time we landed. I'd have to keep track of all that stuff manually and turn in the pay sheet at the end of the trip. Mm. ACARS does all that automatically now. It's all tied to when the door closes or when the brakes are released or when the struts extend when it leaves the ground. (laughs) It sends that signal. So when you're looking at your app on your phone to see what time the flight's going to land to pick up your wife at the airport, that's all being sent automatically because it knew when you left the ground at departure point. Mm. It knows when it touches down at the arrival event. And the crew has no input to that. That's all done automatically. So that was a huge thing because it unloaded. The more you can unload flight crews from doing tasks that a computer or a machine can do, you make it safer because then you got them looking outside more for airplanes. You got them watching the instruments more on an instrument approach that you're on course and where you're supposed to be. So you alleviate a lot of the distractions. So ACARS system, as they call it, and that was way back. That came on fairly soon after I got hired, maybe within four or five years after I got hired. Mm, And uh, so it's not new technology. It's been around a long time, but it made a huge difference. Obviously, GPS was huge because back when I was hired at the airlines, the only people who got GPS was the military. Surveillance didn't have GPS. And GPS is how we do all our navigation around the world now. We don't ever have to worry about being halfway across the Pacific Ocean and not having any nav aids on the ground that we can receive because it's all coming from a satellite. Obviously, all those things are huge. So let me ask you this. I know we've talked about this before, but I think it'd be interesting for listeners is you've got all this technology and I would imagine, and I'm listening to you thinking, (laughs) if I'm flying through a difficult situation, the experience, to me, there's value in having worked in an industry. I mean, even like my industry before everything became so computerized and technology reliant, I just think there's value in that kind of experience. Absolutely. If you can, maybe describe, because I think it seems to me, and you've said this before, the challenges for some is not over-relying on the technology. And even when experience is telling you one thing and the computer is telling you something else, how do you reconcile that? Is that a fair question? Yeah, I mean, it is a fair question. I guess I'd start with, I think I've said this to you before, but there's a lot of equipment and a lot of systems on the airplane. doesn't mean you have to use them all all the time. I kind of think of them as a carpenter's toolbox, right? It's got all kinds of tools in there, but it doesn't use all of them all the time. And the challenge when the automated cockpit came along, the challenge for the old world pilots was to realize there's things there to use as you need them, but you don't have to use them all the time and you shouldn't use them all the time. And so you have to be get good at self-evaluation or evaluation of the situation that you're in and say, I'm going to put the autopilot on because I got two other things to do here and I'm going to get distracted from keeping the airplane straight and level. And then other times you can say, I got the airport in sight. We're ready. We've done the final checklist. We're ready to land. I don't need the autopilot anymore. I'm going to click it off and just fly the airplane. And as far as discrepancies between things, if I understood your question right, you were asking about discrepancy between what the airplane's telling you and what your mind is telling well, you. Well, I go to that story you shared with Ethan about London. I think it was London. You had an approach coming and you were seeing things. The computer wasn't. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I have to admit, I don't remember the exact... <laughs> Something about wind we're... shear and you... Oh, were... yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of wind shear detection equipment on board a modern airliner, computerized where it talks to you and actually call out wind shear or wind shear ahead. But you also have to go back to the basic stick and rudder skills and watch 
what the airplane's doing, what's happening to the airspeed, what's happening to the altitude, back to the regular old airspeed indicator and altimeter, right? Are we losing altitude that we shouldn't be losing? Are we getting off glide path? And there was a case where we were getting erroneous automated indications. And at my experience level and taking into account the other things you need to evaluate, my judgment was that that was a bad warning. It was a false warning and we just need to continue on. I mean, it does happen, right? Any automated computer, whatever, can make a mistake and a little bit of a glitch in the input into it, and then it comes out with the wrong result. And so, yeah, you have to use your experience level and your knowledge to validate what it's telling you. Wow. No, it's fascinating. There's a couple of subjects I want to get to for sure. As I've said to you before, talk to you all day about that stuff because to me, it's fascinating. Any other major incidents that have occurred in the industry as a whole that you really feel are worth sharing with listeners that really changed some things? Obviously, 9-11, you broached that a little bit. Any others? I was just going to say 9-11 because a lot of things really did change there. There's other been milestone accidents, the Sioux City DC-10 crash of United's airplane back in, I believe it was 89. That was a failure on an airplane that they said never could happen. Lost all of its hydraulic systems. DC-10 had three hydraulic systems plus a backup one. And because of the center engine on the DC-10, it came apart, basically, and shrapnel got thrown through an area in the tail where all three hydraulic systems ran. In other words, there was a weak link there. There was a spot where, and nobody would have ever seen it coming, a fan blade comes apart, shrapnel goes through the aluminum, and it's encased in and cut, takes out three hydraulic lines that all had an intersecting point. And so a lot of things came out of that. One was how manufacturers rethought how they built airplanes, that we can't be running all three hydraulic systems, all electrical. So we can't build a weak point where one catastrophic failure can take everything out. And the other thing we learned is, which really applied to the training world that I was in for a large part of my career, is that we need to teach pilots how to handle something like that. Because manufacturers didn't have it in their training program because they never foresaw that it would could ever happen yeah well the crew on that flight even though a lot of lives were lost a lot of lives were saved that they actually got it onto the airport property in sioux city Mm. it was a crash landing because they didn't have any controls other than power they had two engines left that they could change the power on cause it to descend or climb pitch up and pitch down or go right or left but they didn't have any ailerons, rudder, elevator, any of that. And so they were an excellent crew and they worked it out and they got it on the ground again with a lot of loss of life, but a lot of lives were saved. And we realized in the training world that we need to address that. We need to practice that. So thanks to the world of simulators, we can do that safely. We can turn all the hydraulics off and set pilots up to practice that. And so training forever got changed when we when that happened. Wow. So the other one was more recent one with Sully and the Hudson, the A320 into the Hudson. And again, another spectacular job of airmanship getting that airplane turned. I mean, just taking off from LaGuardia, not that high in the air yet, and losing both engines due to birds. And basically, it's just a left turn 180 and back down to the Hudson. And they did a fantastic job of getting it there, a fantastic job of landing it, following their emergency procedures. But that wasn't the big deal. The big deal there was how the accident was investigated. And probably the best way I can say it is for many, many decades, there was always a prejudice to start the investigation thinking it was pilot error. 
Mm. I mean, there just was. And through the NTSB, through the different government agencies, there was this prejudice to start. And it was pushed a lot by manufacturers and <laughs> of airlines <course>. because they're <laughs> protecting their sex, right? So yeah. that was proven very well by Sully in the investigation. And I don't know if you've seen the movie, but if you've seen the movie, it's pretty realistic about how it all came down. Pushed back and proved that the facts that they were using to blame it on pilot error were not accurate. Mm. And so it changed, again, kind of forever how these investigations are done. So it made a big, big difference to the industry, especially to pilots of the industry that always ended up being the scapegoat. So those were some of the bigger things that happened through the years. No, that's just interesting. So let me shift gears. I'm reminded, again, this is from the passenger side, but airports. Now, I know if I asked my wife, Darcy, the worst airport she's ever been to, I think Newark would come out of her mouth before I could even answer the question. I know for me, I remember flying in somewhere for a layover in Chicago and having to literally hike from one end of the airport to the other. I thought it would never end. I figured I was walking home. Then there was landing in San Francisco. And I don't know why, but I remember that approach. And if I'm remembering if this is the right airport, it's literally you're coming in off of a bay and the airport literally runs off to the water, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. And I'm thinking, man, on that foggy area, that could be pretty dangerous. So I don't know. Would you mind sharing again, if it's okay? I don't know whether I'm broaching into security issues, but I'd be curious to good airports, challenging ones from your perspective, as opposed to the rest of us who are hiking across miles of... Uh, well, yeah, airports are very different. And San Francisco is a good example because San Francisco was built back in the 1930s, before World mm-hmm. War II. And it was really built for airplanes like a DC-3, right? It wasn't built for 747s. And there's a ton of airports that have the same problem. It's landlocked. I mean, it's got nowhere to go to build out more space. And less space makes an airport less safe. Right. I could give you an example of Right here where I live, Denver International, it's the largest airport by size, by square miles, largest airport in North America. It has about 52 square miles of space. It has six runways, one of them 16,000 feet long. Compare that to something like LaGuardia that has one square mile, two runways, and about 600 acres. And LaGuardia is kind of like San Francisco. It was built way back when. It's landlocked. There's nowhere to expand. I mean, they're both near water, and you could argue, well, you could build, and they do it in foreign countries. They build new runways out in the water. They build Mm. an island and build a runway out there. But in this country, with the environmental impact that we have and pressure, it's almost impossible to do. So, yeah, airports can be good and bad, and a lot of it's tied to the space that they have to work with. Because somewhere like LaGuardia, the most challenging part of the whole flight is moving the airplane around on the ground. Mm. You've got this giant airplane. And you've got really tight quarters and there's lots of other airplanes there and everything has to really be orchestrated. And it's not that hard for an airplane to ding a wing or something wingtip as it goes by because everything's so tight. Wow. So the other thing is airports safety and usability can be governed by their approaches. And San Francisco, as you brought up, has another issue. And that's because the runways were built back a long time ago. They never envisioned instrument approaches that could land down to 300 feet forward visibility, which we can do these days. But to do that, the runway's got to be spread farther apart. The runway center lines on the main runways, the 2-8 runways in San Francisco, are only 750 feet apart. Well, when you have airplanes that have wingspans of 215 feet, that's getting pretty cozy. And you're doing it blind if you're on instruments. So you're not even seeing that other airplane. You're seeing it on the 
what we call the fish finder, which is the TCAS, but you're not seeing them visually. So that's a challenge and you can't do that. So weather gets low in San Francisco, they have to just use one runway landing. Well, that slows everything down. Everybody's got to get in line to wait their turn to use the one runway. And that's why you get a lot of delays in San Francisco when the weather comes in. Hmm. There's other places like San Diego, which is challenging if you're landing to the west towards the ocean, because if you've ever been in there, you've seen how you come right over, right near the tops yeah. of high-rise buildings that are right off the approach into the runway. Again, nowhere to go, nowhere to expand without going out in the water on the other end. And so obstacles, challenging terrain, Mexico City is another one that comes to mind that's very challenging. High altitude airports, about over 7,000 feet, then hmm. a bowl but with mountains all around it, visibility is usually bad because smog is real bad there. But you got to fly this very challenging arrival and approach to get in past the mountains and into the bowl to get down to the airport. And maybe, maybe when you're with half mile from the runway, you might see it through the spot. So <laughs> there's lots of different things that make airports good and bad, but those are some of them. So if you had to just pick one of your favorite airports to where you know when you're heading there, 99.99% of the time, it's just going to be a nice, easy, but certainly you just feel good that this is a place that's just easy to run in, to fly into. Where would it be? Well, I would say Denver would have to be at, right up the top of the list with its new airport. The airport we have now is only about 27 years old. I think it was finished in 1995. Mm. So very modern, state-of-the-art snow removal, long runways, lots of space. Another one is uh, Narita Airport in Japan. It's way out away. It's not even close to Tokyo City. It's probably 30 miles out. So they've had plenty of space there and the approaches don't have any obstacles. The runways are long. It's another very nice runway or airport to use. No, that's, that's great. A couple of them. No, that's awesome. And again, these are things that the rest of us just don't think about. People are waiting for their Wi-Fi to, to reset so they can text whoever's waiting for them. You know, we landed. Last thing I wanted to ask, and I thought this would be kind of the coolest thing to say for the end, is just the view. I mean, it's one thing to be looking out the window. And I know in the old days, I don't know if I've heard, I don't think pilots do this as much anymore. You point out, oh, the Grand Canyon's over here. But if there was some scenery, occasionally somebody pilot would let you know. But I'd be curious if you wouldn't mind sharing just some of the cool visual things you've experienced up in the air, as you, particularly since you've gone all over the world for so long. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things that come to mind. I mean, I flew a lot of Europe to the west coast of the U.S. In that route, you're way up north, sometimes as far up as the North Pole, practically. But you're definitely in high latitudes, and it's not uncommon there to have a view of northern lights going across Canada, northern Canada at night. Northern lights, if you've seen them, you know how spectacular they are, and they're even more spectacular when you're right up there amongst them it's going on and that's just something that you never really get over it it's so beautiful one of the more unique things that just because it was when i was flying there i was flying to europe i was in london when the volcano in iceland erupted back in i think it was 2000 i don't remember 2010 maybe mm. something like that and we actually had to redo our entire flight plan because of the ash Normally, where that volcano was, the ash was going to be right in our flight path. So we actually had to take off from London and go northeast all the way up to Norway, mm. get up to the top of Norway and come around over the North Pole back down to L.A. And it added about two and a half hours of flight time on the trip to get back. But of course, on our way up there, we could see off in the distance the volcano erupting, which is something to see, too. Wow. It was pretty interesting circumnavigation of the ash. Another thing I found really interesting. 2008 Olympics in Beijing, China, 
And I was flying a charter on the 747. It was ABC charters. They were covering the Olympics and it was all their camera crews and all their talking heads and whatnot were all on board. And I'd flown that route many times, but usually you go way up north near the North Pole and get over the top of the globe and down the other side. You usually come in over Mongolia, which is very rugged high mountains. And then you drop off over those mountains and you drop into the Beijing's in a valley. And normally the smog there is so bad that you never see the airport again until maybe half mile, quarter mile final. You're just coming in on instruments and it's not for weather, it's for smog. But because of the restrictions they instituted to put a good face on the Olympics and they shut down all the factories, only let people drive their car every other day by their license number. And they did a lot of things like that. They put burning coal in their heating in their homes. And we came over the Mongolian mountains there and uh, dropped into the valley. And it was like we could see Beijing and the airport and everything from 50 miles away. I'd never seen anything like it. So there's a lot of interesting things that I've seen over the years just because of things like that. I've just thought of a question I wanted to ask that didn't occur to me, but I know when we started traveling, which was probably internationally, Mm -hmm. I don't know, before the COVID, probably in 2015 and got a chance, spent a lot of time in the northern part of the globe. You hear people say it's a small world. How has all this travel, just these things you're describing, I mean, because you've been everywhere. I don't know how to word this, but how has this changed your perception I don't know if our planet is a little too dramatic, but just, you know what I'm getting at? I'm just kind of curious because it's a really unique perspective. I mean, it's one thing to fly from Cedar City to Salt Lake, you know, do that little run, but to be all over the world like that, I don't know. How does that impact you? Maybe that's the question. Well, I mean, it does impact you. And what you said in the beginning, it's a smaller world than you think. It's uh, when you can go halfway around the world in one flight. It's kind of amazing to think where we'll be in another decade or two with supersonic transport going to be coming back in play and all of that. And you'll do that trip in half the time or a third of the time. One thing it always did to me, and without sounding too kind of corny, but it just convinced me that I still do live in the best place in the world to live. Because when you fly all these different places and you see some of the poverty and some of the conditions that the other countries are in, and when we have our whole playful of problems in this country, but it's not anything like a lot of those other countries are. And you feel pretty blessed to be able to live here, work here, and be in this country. Things like, no doubt, over all the years I flew across the North Atlantic, coming across Greenland into Northern Canada, it was no question that you could see the ice cap receding and receding and receding a little more. And not to get into the weeds and politics or anything else, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with all the reasons that are being blamed for it, but I'm saying it's happening. But it made me really curious. And I went back and did a lot of research through carbon dating and everything else they can figure out even before men were around taking measurements and keeping records or any of that, they can tell if a particular area was water or whether it was ice and that sort of thing. And what I learned out of that was, well, yeah, it is receding, but it also did that a thousand years ago and then it froze again. And so the earth is doing things on its own without input from man, not saying that man doesn't have input in it, but before man ever was making input into it, it, the globe is changing and it's just doing what it's always done, warming, cooling by a degree or two and these things change. So those are some of the things that I saw with my own eyes Yeah, that, that you can't argue with your own eyes. So, but it is an amazing world really, really is. 
Well, I tell you, Steve, I really appreciate the time today. Like I said, I know this is kind of old hat and it's been a life for you, a life from what I've gotten to know of just a beautiful, wonderful career and the work you've done. And it's just fun. I appreciate you sharing, again, the other side of you from the cockpit. Again, none of us think about this. And there's certain places I think the average person goes to when it comes to thinking of airlines. And of course, it's the tragedies and it's the delays and crowded airports. But there's really so much more that goes on. And I think this has been a just a really great conversation to enlighten myself even more just from the conversation we had in the past, but I think everybody in general. So any final thoughts before I uh, let you go and wish you a happy holidays? Anything you'd like to just add? No, you know, I just said it to my passengers on my retirement flight, my last flight, which was from Sydney to Los Angeles. And it's tradition to make a little bit of a speech to your last trip and all that. I said, the one thing about all of this, and I can only thank all of you as the passengers for buying the tickets and making this job possible. But when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And that's how I felt about my career in the airlines. Amen. Well, thank you, Captain Knight, for your time today. Thank you for the uh, inspiration that you've been to my son. I can't even begin to tell you how much I appreciate that. Just thanks for uh, joining me on Upthinking Finance. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.